Our scripture reading this morning is Daniel 12, 5 through 13. Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others stood, one on this bank of the stream and one on that bank of the stream. And someone said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream, How long shall it be till the end of these wonders? And I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time. And that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. I heard, but I did not understand. And then I said, oh, my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? He said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the end of time. Oh, until the time of the end. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined. But the wicked shall act wickedly. And none of the wicked will understand. But those who are wise shall understand. And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1,335 days. But go your way till the end, and you shall rest, and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of, of the days. This is God's word. It is possible that in our series so far, uh, it has raised a lot of questions. And today we'll probably raise some more, which is why I'm encouraging you to send me your questions via email because next week we will deal with some and because I think it's going to take two weeks to do it, two weeks after that we will do one more round. So send me whatever your questions are, we'll get to them so that you can understand how does everything we've been seeing in Daniel fit within the bigger picture of future things and we'll get to it. The disciples asked questions about the time between Jesus' first advent and his return. Originally, they were thinking that Jesus was going to come into Jerusalem and establish the kingdom. But by chapter 12 in Matthew, it's very clear it's not going to work out that way. The religious leaders have already made their plans to execute Jesus. And so in 13, chapter 13 of Matthew, he starts to tell them a bunch of parables that are designed to illuminate what is going to happen between Jesus' first advent and second advent. And these parables provide profound insight into the times in which we live leading up to the return of Jesus. For example, he said, a man sowed good seed, but an enemy came at night and sowed bad seed. And his servants asked the question, shall we go out and collect the tares now? And here is the landowner's answer. 
But he said, no, for while you're gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. Now this parable was designed to teach us about the season between Jesus' first and second advent. Now, not all parables have an answer key where they explain what the details are, but this one does. And Jesus later explained privately how this parable illustrates what is going to happen when he returns. So let's look at the explanation, the answer key that he provides. This is later, he's speaking to the disciples, and he said, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man, and the field is the world. And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom, and the tares are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks, and those who commit lawlessness, and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then, and by the way, here Jesus is actually saying something that is reflected in some words of Daniel. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Right now, Jesus doesn't want the angels to harvest. He wants them to wait until the end because they might not accurately identify which is which. What might look like a tear could later demonstrate itself as wheat. Some that looked like wheat may demonstrate themselves as tares. For example, in the early years of Paul's life, when he was called Saul, if you had looked at this persecutor of the church, he was murdering believers. You would have said, no way, tear. But he became wheat. In 2 Timothy 4.10, uh, Paul tells us about somebody by the name of Demas. And he says, having loved this present world, he has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. I thought he was wheat. Turns out he's tear. Everybody's final answer will be registered when Jesus returns. Here's how it's going to play out. Jesus actually didn't just provide the interpretive key to the parable. He actually told us, here's what's going to happen. This is in the future. It hasn't happened yet, but it's coming. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, which there he's referring to what we've looked at in Daniel chapter 11, the latter part of the chapter, he says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. It's a cosmic shakeup. Then the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, 
And they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. They will gather the wheat. When Jesus returns, he's going to dispatch his angels planet-wide to gather the elect. And all who are wheat and living in that moment will be gathered. If you have become wheat and you are alive in that moment, you will be gathered. Jesus said, this is earlier, and I say to you, everyone who confesses me before men, the Son of Man will confess him also before the angels of God. But he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Wheat will stand before the Lord and before the angels, Jesus will say, he belongs to me. He's one of mine. <laughs> this is mind-boggling. When we declare Jesus is my Lord and Savior, he will confess us as his before the angels. <laughs> Bring it, I'm ready. <laughs> So why am I telling you this? You know, hey, Jim, you're supposed to be in, in the book of Daniel. What, you know, I'm telling you this because until Jesus returns, the verdict is not in. Even in the tribulation, it will be possible for someone to confess Jesus as Lord. He is my Savior. And to actually do a 180 and follow him. In fact, what I'm going to show you from Daniel today is that there will be an amazing number of people who do precisely that. But I would say to you as well, don't wait. You can name Jesus as your Lord and Savior today and move from tear to wheat. When you do... The angels will throw a party in celebration over you. This is Jesus saying, in the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. When one person says, I name Jesus as my Lord and Savior, the angels are going, yes, wheat. How do you do that? Very simple. Acknowledge, I'm a sinner. I can't save myself. But Jesus died on the cross to save me, and I am accepting him as my salvation. So now what I'm going to do is show you the most amazing wheat and tear event in all of human history. And it's captured in the passage that we're going to look at this morning. So this is Daniel chapter 12, verses 5 through 13. It's the remainder of the book. And it's still related to the vision that we've looked at that occurred in chapters 10 and 11. The, the angel who came to provide this vision for Daniel has finished the vision. And in the sermon we did last week, you saw in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 12 that he's saying, here's what you have to look forward to if you know Jesus. So what happened now is... A Q&A period. I call it the Tigris Q&A. 
because this vision is actually occurring at the Tigris River. And the angel who's presented the vision has been kind of hovering over the river. And so this section that we're going to look at, verses 5 through 13, breaks down into four parts. First, a bystander, it seems like an angelic bystander, is going to ask a question. He's going to say, hey, 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 what, what about this? And the angel who's hovering over the water is going to say, here's your answer. And then Daniel is going to raise a question. He's going to say, yeah, but what about? And then the angel is going to answer his question, but he will answer it for Daniel, and then he will answer it also for us. I have kind of two parts to his answer. So here's the bystander question. Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others were standing, one on this bank of the river and the other on that bank of the river. So here's the angel who's revealing the vision. And then he says, I saw two other, presumably, angels, because the people who were with Daniel when he saw this vision, they were all freaked out. They didn't see the angel over the water, but they just fled. They said, I don't know what's going on, but I'm having a panic attack. So they ran. So now he sees here's one man on one side of the river, one man on the other side of the river. And one said to the man dressed in linen who was above the waters of the river, how long will it be until the end of these wonders? So one angel on one of the banks of the river asks the linen-garbed angel who revealed the vision, and his question is literally, I'm going to just give you the Hebrew, I'm not going to do the Hebrew words, but I'm going to tell you the Hebrew word minimum of this. It's simply, how long end of wonders? There's no until in there. He just says, how long end of wonders? And wonders, Pele, is most often used of amazing works of God, but it can also be used of the amazing destruction of a city. For example, in Lamentations 1.19, it's called a Pele event. In other words, can you believe how Jerusalem fell? So basically what he's saying is, how long wonder? What is the time frame? I'm translating his question. What is the time frame for Daniel 11, verses 36 through 40, 45 that we looked at two weeks ago? You know... You described this despicable two and all that he's going to do. What's the time frame for that? How long will this final chapter in the vision that you've shared with us actually take? And the angel answers that question. I heard the man dressed in linen who was above the waters of the river as he raised his right hand and his left toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time. <clears throat> And as soon as they finish shattering the power of the holy people, all these events will be completed. So a messenger, he's still hovering over the Tigris River, and he makes a solemn oath. He raises both hands. Doesn't just, you know, raise his right hand, but raises both hands, which is a way of saying, this is profoundly true. He says, here's the time frame. One time plus two times plus half a time. And there is one plus two plus a half or three and a half. And as we've seen from a previous passage, three and a half years, which equals, if you use 30-day months, which is the Jewish calendar, 
1,260 days. In other words, this angel is saying this ultimate faith test is going to last 3.5 years. Now, this is not the first time that this chronology has been used. For example, in Daniel 7, we looked at this. This was in the first vision that Daniel had. And he said, the angel said, he will speak out against the Most High, referring to this same despicable two. He will speak out against the Most High, will wear down the saints of the highest one, and he will intend to make alterations in times and in the law. And they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. Same expression. But the court will sit for judgment, and his dominion will be taken away, annihilated, and destroyed forever. He's got three and a half years. That's it. Here's another passage in which it's saying something similar but using different terminology. This was from vision number three. We're on vision number four, which was the fourth vision of Daniel. But in vision number three, and he will make a firm covenant with the many for one seven. Remember we talked about how the word that's translated weak is really just a seven. He will make a firm covenant with the many for one seven. But in the middle of the seven, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering, and on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. So again, this three-and-a-half-year window is, is not a new thing. In the first vision, we were exposed to it. In the third vision, we were exposed to it. And now here it is again. Basically, the Antichrist is going to establish a covenant with Israel. But three and a half years into this treaty, he will turn on Israel. He'll set up the abomination of desolation. He will establish himself as God. He will boot up his self-adulation idol, and he will shatter all opposition. So why three and a half years? Why is he telling us that? Because he is telling us, stay true. Hold on. Three and a half years, and then his time is up. You've only got 1,260 days till the finish line. See it. Now I realize that some of us won't be here. Maybe all of us won't be here by then. But it is also possible that it could happen very soon. And when he breaks the treaty and sets up the abomination of desolation, stay true to Jesus for 1260 days. And it will be so worth it by right of what you're going to see. So Daniel's got a question. That was the bystander's question. As for me, I heard but could not understand. So I said, my Lord, what will be the outcome of these events? Now, outcome refers to what follows. In other words, okay, we're doing this 1260-day thing. What happens after that? Where are we going here? Now, he already knows about, as we've seen last week, rescue, resurrection, and reward. He already knows that for those who are living, they will be rescued. And for those who sleep, they will be resurrected. And for all, there will be reward. We already know that. But he's saying, but then what? 
Now, the angel is going to answer the then what question first for Daniel. And it's really bookended. The first sentence and the last sentence is for Daniel. And then in between is for everybody else. So here's his future cast number one, which is for Daniel. He says, go your way, Daniel, for these words are concealed and sealed up until the end time. But as for you, go your way to the end, then you will enter into rest and rise again for your allotted portion at the end of the age. What's going to, what's the outcome? Where are we going? Well, first off, the angel tells Daniel, you have been given sufficient information. I have given you what you need to know. Granted, there is so much more to know, but you have been given what you need to know, which is how God works. He gives us what we need to know, even though there's a whole lot of, but what about, but what about, but what about? Rest is the grave. You're going to sleep. And then the angel tells Daniel that he is going to enjoy benefit number two. Rescue, that's number one, or resurrection, that's number two. If you're alive when Jesus comes, rescue. If you're sleeping, resurrection. Daniel, you're in group two. You will not be in the rescue group, but you will be in the resurrection group. You will not have to deal with Antichrist. Frankly, from my perspective, dealing with Nebuchadnezzar and Darius have been more than enough. You're on the resurrection track. Now, rise, interestingly, is the same word that was used of Michael earlier in the chapter. Remember when it says Michael will arise? It's not so much a statement about resurrection as it is about come into your own. And then it says, you have, you know, you will rise into your lot. That's your inheritance. That's your place in the millennial kingdom. Daniel, you're going to sleep. You'll be in the resurrection group and you will rise, meaning you will come into the position for which you have been prepared in the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. That's your future. That's where this is going. And you, Daniel, will get to experience firsthand what follows when Jesus establishes his kingdom. And you have a role to play in that. Sounds good. Jesus is saying through this angel, Daniel, I've got a job for you. And you are going to come into your own. You're going to rise and assume that position in the coming kingdom. The answer also gives, or the angel also gives an answer to the rest of us. Daniel, as far as you're concerned, it's okay for you to call this chapter complete. You can sleep. And as far as we know, Daniel, who's probably about 83, maybe 85 at this point, could be a little older. There's nothing more we hear from him. He slept. He's sleeping now. Looking forward to the day. But then the angel makes this comment, which Daniel recorded 
And it is essential guidance that hasn't shown up yet in all of the visions about what's coming. He says this in verses 10 through uh, 12. Many will be purged, purified, and refined. But the wicked will act, act wickedly, and none of the wicked will understand. But those who have insight will understand. From the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. Hmm. Three and a half years is 1,260. Wonder what's going on. How blessed is he who keeps waiting and attains to the 1,335 days. Hmm. What's that about? Well, first let's pick up some things that are obvious and then I'll have to get at the things that are a little harder to unpack. The wicked will be clueless. The clock is ticking and they are oblivious. There's those who are saying, I'm going to live on my terms. I don't care about this God stuff. I'm going to live my way. I'm going to live my authentic self. I'm going to do what I want. And they are going to be oblivious to the fact that the clock is ticking. But, here's a Ben and Sakal reference, those with biblically informed convictions will make connections. They'll go, oh, wow, this connects to this. And this verse, it connects to this. And they will know what is happening and where this is going. They will get it. You know, I, I wonder this. There, there are people today, it, it's becoming a growing philosophy. You know, you need to find your own truth and all that jazz. Whether you believe what I'm telling you or not, it is the truth. This is coming. You can not believe it. It won't turn out well. You can believe it. And you are better positioned to be able to make the most of it. But whether you believe it or not doesn't alter the fact that this is true. It is coming. Those with biblically informed convictions will make connections. They will know what is happening, where this is going, and live accordingly. The Antichrist's last big hurrah will last 1,290 days. So why the additional 45 days? You know, uh, three and a half years is 1,260 days. There's a 1,290 in here, and then there's this 1,335. What's that about? Short answer. I don't know. But let me speculate a little bit, okay? According to Matthew 25, 31, and 32, this is Jesus talking. He's telling us about what's coming. And it says, But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. It's possible. Now, again, I'm speculating here. So, you know, as it happens, if we're uh, meet, meeting each other and talking, we can go, oh, Jim, you were so off there. That's okay. I will accept that because I'm speculating. But Jesus Christ is going to return and then there is going to be a season of kind of processing everybody. It's not all going to happen instantaneously. 
And I can easily see how God will be dealing through his angels, dealing with all this sorting and organizing. And inauguration day will be 1335, where Jesus Christ will be recognized as the king. And blessed is anyone who's there saying, my king. That's what I think he's talking about, that this is a period between the coming of Jesus and kind of the establishing, dealing with the, the tares and establishing his kingdom. In this moment, the Lord's prayer will be answered. What did he pray? He said, I want your name to be honored. I want your will to be done. I want your kingdom to be ex experienced here on earth like it is in heaven. And in that moment, his name will be honored, his will will be done, and his kingdom will be expressed here on earth like it is in heaven. And that prayer will be answered. Now, I have not commented on one phrase that I want to go back to because this is the one that to me is stunning. In these dark, and they will be exceedingly dark days, something truly astounding is going to happen. The phrase was this, many, and that, by the way, is our word, rabim, many will be purged, purified, and refined. Now, remember what rabim is. It's a, a plural of many. It's like many, many's. Uh, a whole bunch of many's. Maybe that's a, a good way to say people from every tribe and tongue and nation. There will be three things that happen to them, three results. Many, and many, many's, will be, one, purged. And that's really cleansing, made pure. Purified is actually a word that means made white. For example, here's another passage you're very familiar with it, Isaiah 118, where this same word is used. He says, come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be, here it is again, white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. Purified, made white, and then the third one is refined, which is made pure. Here's another passage, which, by the way, is talking about this same event from Zechariah. And he says, and I will bring the third part through the fire, refine them, that's our word, as silver is refined, that's our verb again, and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is my God. Daniel 12.10 is describing this same Zechariah moment. So here is what takes my breath away. Even as the Antichrist is raging, God is going to use this time to produce a people who are cleansed, made white, and refined. And it will be many, many's of people. God is going to use extreme trial, but to refine. Think of the heat that is used to make gold pure. 
That's what the refine is. Even while the enemy is doing his thing, God is winning. We don't need to be afraid of what is coming. I'm not saying I'm all happy about what's coming, but we don't need to be afraid of it because God is in charge and God is going to use, us, use all of it to make us better, purer, more precious. These are the ones who will say, the Lord is my God. And of whom God will say, these are my people. Do you remember what Joseph said? Joseph was dealing with this kind of stuff. You know, his brothers sold him out. Then he was falsely accused, then put in a prison. Then, even though he interprets a dream for somebody, he's forgotten. There's a moment when his brothers come. They don't recognize him. He reveals himself to them. And they're afraid. And here's what he says. You meant it for evil. God used it for good. The Antichrist and all those who are on in his camp are going to make our lives miserable and they are going to perfectly serve God's purpose to make us a people who are purified and refined and who look more like Jesus and bring it. Now, the book of Revelation actually gives us a glimpse of this same group. After these things, this is uh, Revelation chapter 7. I'll just read some of the verses, but you can look it up later. After these things, I looked and behold, listen to this, a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches when their hands, and they cry out with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Here is a people. A great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues. And they have been cleansed, made white, purified. Where do they come from? And how do they get purified? A few verses later, the answer. Then one of the elders answered saying to me, These who are clothed in the white robes, who are they and where have they come from? John, good answer, says, My Lord, you know. That's another way of saying, beats me. And he said to him, listen to this. These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. And they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Many will be cleansed, purified, refined. That's what's going to happen in this season that is coming. Yes, the great tribulation is coming. And it will be an unprecedented faith challenge. But a people who have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus will prevail. These are people who have trusted in what Jesus, the perfect lamb, did on the cross to cleanse them of all sin. Many tares from every tribe and tongue and nation will become wheat. The enemy of our souls may think he's winning. He is not. The lamb is winning. So which side have you chosen? 
If you have chosen to follow Jesus as your Lord and Savior, no matter what the enemy throws at you, then doing certain exercises is going to strengthen a prevailing faith. We're called to discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. We want to have a prevailing faith that even if we were to face what is coming, we would still stay true to the Lord. You know, in 2018, I had a heart attack. It was a pretty serious one. Uh, the uh, left anterior descending, 95% blocked. Part of my heart died, and, uh, and it's dead. So I had to do rehab. And this is up in Rochester in the previous assignment. I'm grateful for Mayo Clinic because God put me there for that. And so I had to do cardio workouts to get my ejection fraction back within the normal range. I'm grateful to God that he allowed me to do that. But had I gone, you know, I'm good, <laughs> I wouldn't be here today. I had the discipline to get things back on track. So do we with our faith. So I have shown you some different exercises or talked about them. I'm going to share a couple more with you. I do not know when the tribulation is coming, but I know with absolute certainty that we must develop, no matter what, a prevailing faith. Now, Revelation, the book of Revelation, calls those with a prevailing faith overcomers. There are eight promises given to them. So, how can we discipline ourselves to develop a prevailing faith? And I've shown you seven exercises. I want to show you two more. This one's called water cup delivery. Just as I had to do all kinds of things for my heart, these are things you need to do for your true heart. In uh, Matthew 25, verses 34 through 40, we read something very interesting that Jesus is going to say when he establishes his kingdom. This is Jesus. Listen to him. He's going to be talking to us. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, <laughs> when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked or clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. So here's an exercise based on this passage. Find ways to identify with and aid those who are paying a price for their allegiance to Jesus. Now I realize that in our culture right now, this is changing, but right now, it's very easy for us to live comfortable Christian lives. But increasingly, we are going to have to figure out how to help each other because it is going to become costly to name the name of Jesus. So here are some things you can do. Help, help someone who has incurred cost for biblical integrity or allegiance to Jesus figure out a way to be able to support them and help them. 
This is a skill that produces something precious to Jesus. Now, I have a book here um, that I like. This is from Todd Nelton. When Faith is Forbidden, 40 Days. Basically, uh, Todd is with uh, Voice of the Martyrs, and he's done a great job. This is fairly new. But basically, he's just telling stories of what people who make a stand for Jesus are dealing with all around the world, and it will help you appreciate what do I need to do to get this right. I think this one is going to become increasingly needed as we approach the end. We're going to need each other in a way that goes way beyond where we are now. To follow Jesus and to not worship the beast will have profound material cost. And we're going to need to help each other. So start figuring out how to do this now. If there is someone you know who is paying a price for their allegiance to Jesus, figure out how to step up. And if they may be in other parts of the world, then pray for them. I pray for my persecuted brothers and sisters multiple times every week. Start praying for them. Next one is right angle grace. We talked about this with the graces of reconciliation. Jesus did something amazing on the cross that to me is very relevant to what is coming. Luke 23, 34, but Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Now think about what's happening in this moment. He is being crucified, which by the way, to kill Jesus is a sin, right? Jesus is going to die for the sin of killing him. And yet, what is he saying? He's not saying, Father, would you, would you deal with these people? He's saying, Father, forgive them. They're clueless. Jesus is forgiving his persecutors. Can you imagine doing something like that? Can you imagine being flogged and asking Father to forgive the floggers? To get good at this means we can forgive those who hurt us or work our harm. No matter what anybody has done, it doesn't come close to what we have done to Jesus. And so in light of all he's forgiven me, how can I not forgive somebody else? I want to see a practical example of this. So one of our ministry partners, Moses Parmar, we're going to see a testimony that he's going to share with us. Watch this. Someone from a developed nation asked me once, do poor people seek God because of what you are providing to them? I met a Kalpati some years ago. She comes from an extremely poor family in the slum. Her four grandchildren were attending our Sunday school and they brought her to church one day. It seems God spoke to her and she never missed a service. One day I asked her about the strange name she had, which literally means a woman of famine or drought. Why would her parents give her such a strange name? She explained to her that all her siblings were dying soon after birth. So her parents imagined that gods liked their children very much and they took them away one by one. So when she was born, they decided to give her a name that gods would hate her for that. And it worked. She did not die. However, her life turned out to be true to her name. In the age of 12, her parents got her married to a man much older. See, he never worked, got drunk all the time and beat her almost every day. She found work to clean houses, but 
Whatever little she earned, he would take away and drink. He died early, leaving one son. Unfortunately, her son also grew up to be worse than her father, his father. No work, only drinking and beating mother to take money from her. She got him married, thinking marriage would improve him. After bearing four children, his wife one day got tired of him and left him. Now the poor widow was looking after an irresponsible adult son and four grandchildren. I wonder why would she follow Jesus? What did she get from him? Akalpati is illiterate and so she only depends on church Sunday service for her knowledge of God's word. One day I was preaching on giving and mentioned that giving needs to be sacrificial. It is not true giving until it hurts. After the church service, she came to me and told me that Jesus spoke to her and that she put 100 rupees in the offering bag. I was shocked. I knew that it was a big amount for her. I almost told her that the message was not for her. You often have someone else in mind when you preach and strangely God speaks to someone else. But she insisted that God spoke to her to give that gift. The following month, I was preaching about forgiveness and I mentioned that forgiveness is a true sign of salvation. If you cannot forgive, I wonder if you have received the forgiveness of God. After the service, Atampati came to shake hands with me and she would not leave. She started weeping bitterly. She said her greatest enemy is, his own, is her own son. She would, not, she would want him to leave home, get arrested, go to prison or die. She did not care what happened to him. But now, her pastor was saying that she was not a Christian if she can't forgive. She requested that we pray for her for strength to forgive. I realized how difficult it was to preach because people can believe and not do what God's word is saying. I wondered how a poor, illiterate, backward woman gets all this wisdom from God. One day, one Sunday, her youngest grandson came after the church service crying and requesting us to visit his home because his brother had died. I was completely shocked. The oldest grandson, 11 year old, had started working in a little tea shop to earn little money to help his grandmother. In the evening, while coming back from the shop, a vehicle hit him and he died that night. I could not believe God could do that by taking away the only support this woman, poor woman had. There are three million people in Lakhna. Why did he need to die? I told the church I won't be able to go if they did not come with me. Whole congregation went to her home and we prayed for her. Next Sunday, her son, adult son, came to the church for the first time and requested that we pray for him. I bowed down and worshiped God whose ways are higher than our ways. No wonder people from the East and East come flocking to seek in his kingdom. There is no one like Jesus. The forgiven have the power to forgive. If Jesus has forgiven you, you can forgive anyone, even those who persecute us, even those who make our life difficult. So at every forgiveness challenge that you face now, Simply say this, in light of how much God has forgiven me, how can I withhold forgiveness to someone else? Practice this now, and you will grow a prevailing faith for what's ahead. Let's pray.
Father, I am pleading on behalf of myself and this people. We want to be a people of prevailing faith. Thank you for letting us know what is coming. Thank you for the encouragement that it will be a time of unprecedented gospel advance. Can't wait. Make of us those who represent you well, no matter what the enemy throws at us. We're desperate for you to work. In Jesus' name, amen.